Salam and welcome everyone to another episode of the Ajam Media Collective podcast. This is your host, Ali Karjuravari, and we are joined today by Dr. Mana Kia, an associate professor at Columbia University's School of Middle Eastern, South Asian, and African Studies, to discuss her recent book, Persianate Selves, Memories of Place and Origin Before Nationalism published just recently in 2020 by Stanford University Press. Mana, thank you for joining us and welcome. Hi, Ali. Thank you for having me. So Persian itself looks at pre-modern and early modern conceptions of place and origins to explore basically what it means to be Persian before nationalism. So if you could start us off just basically, what does it mean to be Persian before nationalism? The kind of main point that I try to get to in the book is that the ways that we understand what Persian is now comes from and depends on certain ideas that are very connected to conceptions of the nation and the creation of nation states. And we know from a lot of scholarship that this is actually pretty new. So we have scholarship that tells us about the rise of Iranian nationalism and the creation of Iran as a nation state. And so the question becomes, what did it mean to be Persian before that? Part of the thing that is connected to a different idea of what it meant to be Persian beyond just the nation state is the fact that the Persian language existed in a very, very different way before the 19th century. So it was a sort of shared language of learning, culture, government, and used for a lot of different kinds of writing and communication from West Asia, Central Asia, and South Asia. And so the fact that it was not the language of discrete nation states, but was a kind of larger shared space culturally, I was sort of interested in understanding what it meant to be from there. And I came to this question in part being very interested in trans-regional movements of people, texts, practices, goods, and ideas. And, you know, we have something called inter-Asian studies, which looks at the movement of people across Asia. We also have Indian Ocean studies that looks at the circulation of people across the ocean and how the different regions are connected through this kind of circulation. But the question I was sort of interested in is beyond these shared linkages of land and sea, what did sharing a language facilitate? What did it mean that people had the same sort of basic education? And you could go from Iran to India, you could go from the Gulf to the Bay of Bengal, and you could use this language and point to similar kinds of practices or ideas and be understood. So the thing that I got to was that you had a conception of selfhood that was based on a very different set of understandings of place and origin. And I wanted to kind of lay out what these looked like and the different kind of self and relatedly Uh, because selves were never selves alone. The argument I make and one of the things that I found is that people understood themselves in relation to multiple collectives. And so a self was produced out of multiple affiliations a person had to a larger collective. And so I wanted to get a sense of the range of possibilities of Persian selfhood that really allowed for a kind of pluralism that I think that modern 
forms of being that are connected to the nation state have a much more difficult time with? This is such a fascinating question because so many modern ways of understanding this are stuck on your either this or that. And you bring up this notion in the book of coherent contradictions, right? That you can be more than one. There's many selves. So could you actually first situate us then? Persian is, is one of many identities, right? There are many forms of Turkic identity. There are other forms of Hindustani too that existed decade you bring up. So in the sort of constellation of places and origins and these terms, can you situate Persian in relation to these other ethnic terms, linguistic terms, and even places? So one of the things that when I started trying to do that, you know, and this book took a long time to write. (laughs) When I started (laughs) trying to do that, I found myself getting tripped up in my own language. And one of the things that became very clear to me is that we actually don't have, our modern language gets in the way of us not making statements about what it was like for pre-modern Persians that kind of doesn't contradict itself. So one of the things I argue in the book, for instance, is that we can't think about being Persian as an ethnicity. And actually what I look at is the, the question of being Turkish or Turkic, and that it's not an ethnicity It is, along with natal lineage, there's a whole set of lineages. And these aren't necessarily identities. That's also a term I try and stay away from. They're identifications and affiliations. And so, you know, and they're not always about choice. You're born with a whole bunch of affiliations and you accrue others, either intentionally or unintentionally. Because you can decide that you want to represent yourself in a particular way according to a set of affiliations with smaller uh, collectives, but others may describe you and take that out of your hands. But the point I tried to make is that there is a common language by which people made themselves understood, even if they were disagreeing with each other. And one of the things that it would have been, I think, unimaginable was to say that you can only have one vatan, you can only have one asl, and that your asl or your origin is only your native lineage. And then if you went even farther and said that this was your blood, people would look at you like you were nuts. I mean, that's completely unintelligible in a pre-modern context, but it was very hard to talk about kinship and relationship and affiliations with social collectives Getting past using these terms like ethnicity, which is related to race, which is related to certain kinds of blood conceptions of kinship that are very modern and ultimately originate in a particular chapter of Europe's Western Christianity. And it comes from certain ideas about the Eucharist and community of shared blood. When I realized this, I went back, and and this is because I read a particular book called blood. (laughs) But when I went back and I looked at my primary sources, when I looked at things written in the 17th and 18th century, there is no blood anywhere. The only time people bring up blood is when they're talking about murder. (laughs) Yeah, That is not the idiom of kinship. So the question becomes, what is the idiom of kinship? What is the idiom by which people relate themselves to others? And that's where I settled on the concept of lineages, because that actually, the concept of lineages and the fact that they were so much more broad than those that we are born with, which aren't blood anyway, because they depend in large part on legal relationships. What kind of lineages are we looking at? 
So one of the things that I found really interesting is that both in terms of place and in terms of origin, there are features of it in the pre-modern context that look like ours, but they're embedded in and mixed in with a whole bunch of other features that do not look like ours and actually undermine the logic of ours. So your parents and your genealogy um, are connected now to ethnicity, but at that period of time, you could be as, and sometimes more prominently, defined by your lineages to do with learning, to do with your occupation, to do with devotion, to do with service, different forms of service relationships, depending on your social location, your occupational class. Um, These types of things were as important and sometimes more important. And it was according to different kinds of people. So pre-modern Persians were constituted by a multiplicity of lineages, and these lineages often crossed our modern ideas of difference, such as religion, region slash nationality, political community, these sorts of things. This, to me, made me think, well, this is not helpful. The scholarship that I was looking at could only use categories like Iranian or Indian. And this is in the context of the fact that scholars of Mughal India obviously have acknowledged for a long time that large numbers of people from Central Asia and West Asia came to India. And oftentimes they stayed, sometimes they went back or moved on. But there isn't a way to talk about them as anything but Iranian emigres. And one of the things that I found really interesting is that when you go back into the sources, Iran isn't really the term that's used that often. And it's never used when talking about a homeland. And so the question becomes, are they Iranians to anyone except for us? And what are we missing when we just make that translation way too quickly? And I thought one of the things that we were missing was a kind of set of possibilities of how to live that has some more potential than the Eurocentric go-to of tolerance. So when you're talking about homeland then, What was their notion of homeland? And when you identify them as Persians then, is it simply that these were people whose primary mode of self-expression was the Persian language? So obviously, these are multilingual environments. And, you know, there's a lot of attention that's given for obvious reasons because it's difficult to kind of think about and attend to. And there's a lot of attention given to kind of elite or scholarly multilinguality, which is very important. Most people who could write in Persian had probably learned formally Arabic as well. But I think that especially like for me, when I'm taking the Persian speaking world, so it's like West, South and Central Asia, we can call it Persianate Asia. When I take that, it's obviously not also homogenous. Different places have other kinds of both learned languages and spoken vernaculars. And I think even it's very clear from some of the descriptions that I saw that completely illiterate people often spoke multiple languages. I mean, my grandmother (laughs) grew up in the kind of last generation in colonial Burma, uh, and she spoke five languages. She could maybe read and write, maybe two. She could read Arabic, 
I don't think she could write it. And she could read and write English. Her Persian was pretty sketchy in terms of reading and writing, but she could speak it fluently. And she could speak Urdu and Burmese too. So, I mean, I think that, and it's very clear from the sources and travel logs are a great place to kind of think with this, as well as various kinds of anecdotes and tasketas that often constantly make mention of the fact that so-and-so also wrote verses in this or that other language. And they may not include them, but it's there. So we are talking about multilingual environments, both orally and in writing. So I'm not making a kind of claim for the primacy or singularity of Persian, but I do think that Persian does become a kind of primary connecting language. And I try and explain Persian as something that is governed by a logic of aporia, which means it's kind of porous and interpermeable. The central concept that I give is how to understand Persian culture is adab. And adab is a certain, because it's not enough just to like know some words, right? Yeah. It's not about just knowing words that you can like say as a robot. It's about the fact that you imbibe the language in the form of stories and knowledge that shaped a certain kind of perception of the world and formed a particular kind of logic through which it was understood. And so adab is the proper form of things. And you can think of it as the proper form of seeing, speaking, perceiving, experiencing, and even desiring. Like, what are the things you want? And where does that come from? And this is a certain kind of thing. Now, adab obviously has cognates in all kinds of other languages adjacent to Persian. And it comes from Arabic. (laughs) You have adab in Arabic and you have it in Urdu and you have it in various kinds of Turkic languages. And the point isn't that it's special and there's nothing else like it anywhere else except for Persian. But what is proper form is specific to the accrued tradition of each language, right? And so they're not mutually exclusive, but they're not identical either. And so that also creates the room for points of connection and kind of interchange and traffic between various languages. Now, one of the interesting things is the area of the Persianate world that I spend the most time looking at is India. And India has adjacent languages that don't necessarily have a correlate with ADAP. So one of the things you can see in South Asia, which is very fascinating, and it becomes a very kind of sustained process in the 16th and 17th centuries, is this attempt to create points of mutual resonances, both in terms of storied figures, stories, concepts, intellectual traditions, things like that. And this happens at the level of, for instance, Safavid scholars coming to India and trying to make sense of Vedanta as well as Sanskrit and other vernacular languages translating uh, Yosef and Zulekha and trying to make sense of its concepts and ideas. And that happens through kind of making points of mutual resonance. Now, what that also means is that things as they travel don't stay the same. But I also think that that isn't completely different from what happens within the Persianate world um, and that there are regional differences and kinds of varieties that basically engender multiplicity rather than a difference in alterity. And that doesn't mean that something like alterity doesn't exist, but it's not de facto existing with any kind of variation. 
The question of adab, which which is a which is a deep one, I and mean, you really get into it in many ways in the book, though, brings up the larger question of the relationship of the Persianate to Islam itself and the Islamicate. I remember I met this really interesting Moroccan Sufi Sheikh once, and we were talking, and he mentioned that you know, oh, things are really bad with Iran now, but we remember that when we were younger, and of course he's like talking about the past that there came a lot of people from Iran and they were people who were possessors of adab, like the adab, and also of dawud, of tasting. So this notion that adab also has, though, that's way beyond even the Persianate, that, I mean, it's part and parcel of Islam, while also even in non-Persianate contexts, a means that doesn't have to do with confessionally belonging to Islam as a religion, right? You can be Coptic and have adab. So can you talk about the relationship of the Persianate to Islam and where Adab falls? So this book, the story of my book, is one of these stories where I wrote a book actually that was twice as long as what got published. And so <laughs> the the introduction frames a story that I don't get in depth in a lot of it. And that question of the relationship between Persian Adab and Islam is one that I just kind of outline and then I show in certain places in the examples in the book, especially when I'm talking about non-Muslims or talking about Muslims talking about non-Muslims. Right? So I do have a second book that has some of this that I get into this more in depth. But let me start with one thing. So, you know, Shahab Ahmad's sort of very famous book, What is Islam? He has a very funny relationship with the Persianate where he basically is like, oh, no, we're not going there because that's like de facto ethnocentrism. He puts in a lot of labor and then all of a sudden he gets super lazy there. But nevertheless, um, when his Bengal to Balkans complex breaks down is when the Persian language contracts. And one of the things that I thought was very interesting is that it's very difficult for him to talk about when non-Muslims are participating in something Islamic, right? And one of the examples he gives is of a Sikh wrestler. And this Sikh wrestler is part of, you know, what we would understand as the kind of Zurkhane tradition. And he is constantly invoking Ali, but he doesn't think he's Muslim. <laughs> right? Yeah. And one of the things that kind of keeps, I think, Ahmad from really making or showing how it's possible for the Sikh wrestler to be invoking Ali, okay, fine, it's participating in the Islamic, but it's really possible, and I've seen this in a number of my sources, that he might even be actively hostile to Islam. But one of the things that allows for the kind of transition is the Persian Pahlavani tradition and the concept and the kind of link that somebody like Rostam makes. And you can see this link between Rostam and Ali in Iran, too. Right. We have gravestones that show it like it's in their texts, like the Rostam Nameh that invoke Imam Ali in the beginning. Yeah, <laughs> um, of so there is a certain kind of apparatic palimpsestic accumulation of these figures. Mm -hmm. And it's also a kind of poetic sensibility of Eham, the idea of layers of meaning. So Ali becomes associated with the Zurkhane, but there is a way in which the connection that's being made is not necessarily possible with Islam without the Persianate, without the kind of connections that get made. And that's transmitted through Adab. I have a really close Sikh friend and we used to work out together. And I said, Ya Ali, once 
And he's like, why would you use Ya Ali for something so simple? <laughs> he's like, we would only use it when we need it. <laughs> so he had this sort of So like, you were getting schooled. <laughs> uh, I was getting schooled but by him. And I think because Sikhi has a much more complicated relationship with Islam. I think that the example that you bring up in the book of Joseph Amin, this Armenian, is actually much more clear because an Armenian's relationship to Islam is very different than necessarily a, a pre-modern Sikh relationship to Islam. So could you actually tell us more about this interesting figure? So Joseph Amin is from an Armenian family. He's born in Hamadan and he's a family of merchants and he's with that same kind of group that came um, in the mid-Safavid period. Shah Abbas kind of forcibly removed his family with a bunch of other merchants and brought them down further south to Adagha Ajam. Right. His family goes to ha- you usually hear about the ones in Nujulfa, uh, but his family <laughs> yeah. goes to Hamadan and he is he's basically born when the Ottomans are occupying the city after the Safavids fall um, to the Afghans. And then the Ottomans are like, hey, let's get in there. And then the Russians come in from the north and he writes a lot about all of the upheaval and discord. And he, he's quite an interesting figure because his family goes, um, they start kind of slowly, slowly relocating, as many Armenians do, to Indian ports, which most of them are not, they're not British ruled yet. But his family ends up in Calcutta, uh, which in the course of his lifetime does come under British rule, except he doesn't want to be a merchant. So he runs away and he actually goes and spends about seven years in England um, and he he was clearly very capable to, of social networking. And he met like Edmund Burke in a park when he was a student and got in with all of these kind of up and coming important figures and gets sent to like military school and becomes this cause celebre and gets people to donate all this money to send him back to the Caucasus to kind of liberate the Armenian homeland. And in doing this, this he has three like failed attempts at doing this, in the middle of which he goes to Esfahan, he gets married, um, <laughs> and then he goes, you know, back to Russia and then comes back. And and basically, after Kadim Khan dies, um, he's like, I better get out of Dodge. And he goes and settles down in Calcutta and writes his memoirs there. And he writes them in English. And there's two very interesting things about this memoir. One is he is almost without fail when he's talking about Muslims and Islam as a group in the abstract, he's very hostile. I mean, there's no question. Um, So this is not like somebody who's like, oh, no, I like Islam. It's fine. It's there's no like none of that. And he even has all kinds of stereotypes like, you know, the thieving Arabs or something like this. Right. All sorts of things, you know, and he's writing in English. So this is not like outside, but you can see certain things that are clearly translated from Persian in his English, including how he begins, right? It starts with a hamd to God. Um, there are all kinds of features of this text which look like a Persian text, as well as other kinds of expressions, habits. When he throws Hafez in, he does not write it in English. He puts the Persian in. He can throw down Hafez. So he knows Persian. He knows Turkish. He writes this in English, and he uses all kinds of very Persian concepts and even constructions. And, for instance, as somebody who's trying to liberate the Armenian homeland, he actually also has this kind of partisanship about Iran. So, you know, when he's born in the environment he grows up in, is very cataclysmic. But when Nadir Shah starts kicking everybody who's coming out, right, he, like, 
kicks out the Afghans and then the Ottomans and and whatever, he is really admiring of Nadir Shah. <laughs> Even though Nadir Shah very famously in 1747 burned alive a bunch of Armenian merchants in Esfahan. But one of the most fascinating things that he does is at some point he ends up in the Caucasus and, and he ends up with some Dagestani military leader. And he talks about Javan Mardi. And he says that this guy, I think his name was like Mahmoud or something, um, is my brother. And he is a noble man and he is this and we exchange bread and salt. And, you know, I mean, it's just it could have been written in Persian. So in the book, you look at Iran and Hindustan, but you look at them at three different moments. First moment, Iran has fallen apart. In the second moment, Hindustan has fallen apart. Uh, and then, you know, finally, it all falls apart <laughs> in a sense. Um, and as a testament to what you're talking about of these, of these Persian selves and the power of Adab, it, while these regions are falling apart, this, this sort of notion of belonging doesn't. So could you could you actually sort of walk us through this really fascinating uh, way that, that you've shown how time and place, even as, as things fall apart, the, this sense of belonging that, that it sort of hinges around Adab survives and what allows it to survive? Well, I, I think that um, one of the things that I found when I read a lot of scholarship is that there is this kind of, I mean, I would call it methodological nationalism, but it's sort of this nationalistic hangover where all sorts of ways in which societies cohere um, and people relate to one another seems to uh, begin and end with the political kingdom. Um, And I actually just didn't find this to be true. (laughs) And I looked specifically at the 18th century because that's when it all falls apart. And so many of our um, histories and studies are really about a dynasty or a ruler. Um, and and um, there, there are kind of two periods of time. There's the 15th century and the 18th century um, in which a lot of both Iran and India are, um, they, they're decentralized. Their power has devolved onto multiple regional centers from a, from a, a kind of um, earlier empire. Um, and uh, in some cases, they're very different from one another, right? Um, and you see this in the 15th century in both Iran and India, as well as the 18th century. And I think the difference with the 18th century is that um, by the end of it, one of those um, regional uh, kingdoms is ruled by the East India Company, which is uh, begins over the next hundred years to kind of slowly eat everything else up. Um, and kind of becomes a colonial power in the in the modern capitalist European sense, and and intentionally roots out Persian, right? They intent they intentionally abolish it, but the first um, the first several decades that they're in there, they're they're trying to use it. Um, and actually, some newer work that I'm doing is looking actually at what happens there when the when the British get involved and how it's in some ways very fundamentally different. Um, from what happens under anyone else, including like when the Marathas take over, uh, you know, it's not about Islam there, <laughs> it, you know, because the Marathas are like have been kind of acculturated in many, many ways. By the 18th century, the ruling Maratha faction is claiming descent from Anushiravan. And if you look at their uh, governance practices and their language and even their bureaucratic script is Modi and it's a Persianized Marathi. Um, 
So, I mean, th- this is a this is a kind of group of people um, who are staunchly and devoutly Hindu, and we're trying to reinscribe a Brahmanical order, right? But at the same time, we're we're very deeply um, Persianate, but the British are not. Right? Yeah, <laughs> like they're they're not. Um, and and so I I mean I'm sort of looking at that, and one of the main things that they reject, for instance, is um, the political ethic of companionship and how this has to be practiced in terms of the administration of justice, um, as well as just administration in general. Right. But they're, you know, they, they, they basically say, you know, we are no longer going to, uh, you know, have sohbat with you. We are never, we're no longer going to have these audiences or hearings or put it in paper. Um, and I'll read it by myself. <laughs> right. And this is like a complete break with anything that has happened before. Um, I mean, so th- that that's something else. Um, but, but in the 18th century, what you see is not new, is my point, is that there have been periods of time in which decentralization, like political collapse and decentralization have been the order of, you know, a certain kind of extended period of time. Right. And then, you know, and then maybe at some point later, some kind of new um, empire kingdom rises up. And at the end of the period that I look at, you know, I end it in the very early Rajar period. And, you know, things were looking good the first couple decades (laughs) of the early Rajar period. Right. And there was a lot of discussion about how, like, you know, I mean, and everything after that is about have Safavid domains been reinstituted. Right. And the Rajars are really trying to connect to that, but they're actually doing pretty well for a couple of decades. Um, And that's the kind of point I stop because um, Iran kind of gets itself back together in some kind of form, even though that gets ultimately interrupted by European imperial incursion as well of a different sort. Um, But so something gets arrested in both Iran and India um, but in the period before, which is marked by decades of upheaval, invasion, like, um, and decentralization, um, you still have, and, and scholars have argued, actually, Persian, um, it kind of penetrates through um, South Asian society in ways that it previously was unheard of. But one of the things that I think you see is that Adab is is a kind of, it, it gives kind of a shape and form to relationships between people, right? And so it creates and envisions a certain kind of social order out of which polities could grow and inscribe themselves in their terms. And so one of the things you also see is the way that people rely uh, and invoke um, the forms of adab as a way to kind of keep cohesion at moments when polities fail and collapse. So one of the things you can see is people trying to um, exhort um, and invoke um, and remember um, kind of a certain kind of moral order um, when things are collapsing. And then when you start to see, and you can, you can definitely see this, when you start to see uh, polities reconstituting, um, they also um, articulate themselves in these terms as well. And they draw on these terms and these forms. And for instance, um, you have Tasketa writing, um, which is one way of commemorating collective, 
in South Asia, in these regional kingdoms through the mid-19th century. And this was a way of kind of articulating a smaller regional self. But many of them were still choosing to do it in Persian. And, and you actually see an explosion of Tasket writing. So, so Tasket has been around um, since the 15th century, but you start to see a massive uptick in the 18th century. And I think that this is uh, directly related to kind of trying to shore up a, a certain kind of moral and social order in the midst of political collapse. And I think part of this is, so Tasketas, one of the things I talk about in the book is that we cannot translate Tasketas as biographical dictionaries, right? They're not reference texts. They are commemorative texts. And memory has a very, very particular and important role in the possibility of morality. One has to remember examples and experiences in order to make the right decision. And a lot of that is encapsulated in both people's lives um, and in their deeds and in their written products. And so, you know, there's a connection that's made in these texts, for instance, about somebody's substance or disposition encapsulated in their ability to uh, compose. And something like uh, Tasket has had all kinds of logics. Um, sometimes, I mean, I think the much broader form of them, like the Tabakat tradition, and you have uh, Tabakat texts very often of scholars of ulama, but you also had them of poets, uh, Persian poets. You had them of statesmen. Uh, we have some of calligraphers. So so lots of different kinds of people. You have uh, Sufi Tasketas. But I think that the thing that's most interesting, at least about the ones that I look at, I look at mostly Tasketas of poets. Uh, but I think it's important to remember that this is actually a pretty broad cross-section of society, because anyone with like any sort of aspiration towards any sort of learning could could throw down some poetry and and it was such a it was such a form of currency and communication in so many different social situations um, and political situations that um, it, it was really a basic part of your education so so people so there are a lot of people in these tasketas that have no tajalos, right? They have no pen name because they, they they weren't really that involved enough in it <laughs> to have one. But they become included because um a tasketa can connect itself to a particular locale um or a project or a time period, right? It can commemorate any number of things. Um, one of the things that's really interesting is that some of the more local Tasketas that you talk about, for instance, um, if you look at Tasketas from Sindh, from the, the sort of region which is now in Pakistan, if you look at Sindh in the 18th century, the Tasketas produced there included anyone who wrote any poetry who passed through there. They could have hung out there for two years, and they're part of the, they're part of the Sindhi Tasketa. Right. And it could be someone whose family lived there for generations. But those people were included together and they become basically constitutive and kind of an assemblage of people that lived sometimes before, sometimes concurrently. Sometimes they're people the the author knew personally, sometimes didn't know them at all. Right. Um, but they become part of a kind of collective these collectives are the, the kind of basis and the terms of possibility out of which selves grew and became distinct and, and legible. 
as someone who's obsessed with poetry, I, I want you to talk more about poetry, thinking about the connection between adab and poetry. So what is it about, I mean, poetry in particular and its, and its sort of capacity itself of not only being a part of adab, but, but creating bonds of adab in a sense? I mean, I always, I, I kind of usually um, more specifically define adab as aesthetic and ethical form. And the aesthetics of Persian poetry in many ways um, outline its ethical contours as well. So one of the things that we all know and appreciate in Persian poetry, and obviously you have masters of it like Hafez, and you have people, you know, like um, you have people that, two-bit poets who aren't as good at it, <laughs> right, is a concept of iham and this idea of multiple levels of meaning and the fact that that multiplicity, which might even seem in, like at, at its most superficial level is incommensurate. But in fact, the good poet can make you see the connection. And that is, that is when you can do that, you have, that is like the highest aesthetic feature of good poetry. And, and there is something I think prized in that. And so I think that that potentiality is very much there. And it's, and I think it's, it's definitely part of, um, you know, obviously this is, this imbues um, Sufism, but we have all of these little boxes that we put it in. So we, like, if you talk about Sufism, everyone's like, oh yeah, okay. But I think that this, at least by the 17th and 18th century is pretty commonsensical. And everyone, I mean, you know, it's very easy to think about um, denigrating uh, uh, ulama as like ahund who can only see like, like don't do this and and do this and and you know only understands Islam as prescriptive do's and don'ts. Um, but but you you have people making that kind of critique like hundreds of years ago, <laughs> and the critique is basically that these are the people that can only see the superficial level. And that things have truth at different layers. And the highest order of truth is not the one that stops at radical division. So I, I think that that's very much part of a set of ethical sensibilities as much as a feature of the aesthetics of the Persianate. That's fascinating. Before we leave, I wanted to ask a sort of more personal question, because in the book, we get glimmers of your own background and ancestry. In a book about self, you don't hide yourself. It, it's interwoven. <laughs> um, and so could you tell us more? Like, I mean, you, so you mentioned your grandmother, like that's so, that's so fascinating in and of itself. So what was going on in Burma? <laughs> when did they come to Iran? That was actually supposed to be what my dissertation was going to be about. Um, and I actually did a ton of research on this so I can answer that question. <laughs> um, but I ended up writing about an earlier period simply because I realized we didn't have the language and and kind of basis of understanding to really get, you know, what the hell were Iranians doing in Burma? <laughs> so I put myself in the book partly because, um, I mean, this is part of a kind of feminist move uh, that's not unique to me, that other people, um, for instance, I think somebody who does it absolutely brilliantly is Samia Khatun, who wrote a book called The Australia Name, and she very much puts herself in it and her own process of research and background and experiences. I did it to a lesser degree that I thought was appropriate, but it's part of a certain understanding um, of 
the fact that my topic, I don't want to treat it like a dead object of knowledge. It is something that I'm connected to that has meaning for me. And I wanted to make that clear that it's not dead for me. It's not dead in the world. Um, and it is still meaningful and at play. So I, I was born in Iran um, and I came here, uh, like a lot of people, after 79 with my family. But my grandparents, my mother's parents, had immigrated to Iran just before World War II. Um, and they were in their 20s. And they had, they both came from families that had spent several generations in Burma since the early mid 19th century. And my grandmother was actually born in Samarra because her father was a scholar and he had been off studying with, uh, um, God, I can't remember. It, was it Mirza Shirazi at that point? Anyway, and then he went back to Burma <laughs> um, and he took his, his teachers, one of his teacher's daughters with him. Uh, but his last name was Kaboli. So th- they had actually come from Kabul, although there was some story originally we're from Neshapur, whatever, right? Everyone and their dog uh, has some kind of original origin. But the point is, is that um, with the kind of rise of modern nationalism in the early 20th century, um, when they started to have less space and things started to change, right? And all of a sudden they became foreigners. When they decided to migrate to Iran, Kabuli became a problem. I mean, they were Shia, but still, Kabuli doesn't sound Iranian. <laughs> and so uh, what she actually ended up doing is um, adopting a, a different last name. I mean, they all had to change their last names. So that's, that's the background. So when I was growing up in LA and people would ask me, are you Iranian or Persian? And, and you really in the 80s wanted to say you were Persian because Iran was like, you know, our family was kind of little bit different. And it took me a while to figure it out and make sense out of it. You know, I tried to do a biography of my grandmother and she was like, okay, you know, we're supposed to be Iranian. And I was born in Samara. I was, you know, grew up in Rangoon and, and, you know, I made cow sway for lunch and, you know, none of this stuff was Iranian. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Mona, for this fascinating discussion. For our listeners, Her book is called Persianate Selves, Memories of Place and Origin Before Nationalism, and it was just published by Stanford University Press, so I encourage you all to get it. Thank you. Thank you, Ali. It's been a pleasure.